Hey guys, it's Pablo, and we made it. We've made it to the end of June. Tomorrow is July 1st. Tomorrow is the day that is known in some circles as Bobby Bonilla Day. Because on this day every year, the former New York Mets outfielder collects nearly $1.2 million. Even though he retired more than 20 years ago now. And the reason why is so extraordinarily Mets. So today, with the Mets sitting atop their division, atop the entire National League, in fact, we wanted to step back and take a moment to plumb the soul of this fan base with our conversation from last year with Devin Gordon, the author of the book, So Many Ways to Lose. Because right now, it does feel like everything could go right or very wrong for the best worst team in sports. So yeah, it is Thursday, June 30th, and this is ESPN Daily. Meet the Mets, meet the Mets. What was your favorite part of this book to write, Devin, as you were making your way through this deep, dark journey through the soul? I was thinking that maybe it would be writing about Eddie Chavez's catch, or maybe it was writing about the 69 World Series. But if I'm being honest, the most fun thing to write was trashing all your other crappy teams in the prologue. That was really fun. (laughs) It was, there was something just like processing about it, cathartic about it. And reassuring to me that my team really is better at losing than all of yours. Devin, that is the most Yankee fan thing a Met fan has ever said. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Devin Gordon, I want to disclose at the outset here that I did grow up a Yankee fan. I do identify as such, although I'm not like gonna yell 27 rings bro at you like more than at least once (laughs) i appreciate you that said it in a speaking voice (laughs) (laughs) devin gordon writes about some of the most interesting topics in sports and his book so many ways to lose is available now i mean i want to understand devin like your psychoanalysis of yankee fans here at the top because (laughs) I do want to make it about myself. True of course, to Yankee I was going to say, let's make form. it about you, Pablo. Let's make it about the Yankees. Sure, go ahead. Well, look, I read your book, So Many Ways to Lose, <laughs> your opus about Mets fandom. It made me laugh a lot, genuinely, very genuinely. And there was a passage that you wrote about Yankee fans that <laughs> cut to the core of me and how we cheer. There's just this way that you guys, as soon as you get really fired up, there's like this adrenaline surge, testosterone surge, and then the voices drop and you just, let's go Yankees. (laughs) And like, even like everyone, even the people with high voices, people with false, like natural falsettos do it. They just drop like four octaves to just let a little dose of fascism into the cheer. Yes. And (laughs) at some point it occurred to me, like... These are Imagine Dragons choruses. This is where the Imagine Dragons got their choruses from, is they came to Yankee Stadium, they heard Yankee fans cheering, and they're like, I like the sound of this. Let's go make some hit records. It's so real. 
I had never <laughs> articulated it like that. But let's go Yankees is absolutely um, autocrat adjacent at the very least. If poisoning the well for you guys is all I do with this book, that will be enough. I, you know, if I don't sell enough copies to get enough to do another book, if making Yankee fans and putting that seed in your head that you just wince every time you cheer from now on because of me, I'll take it. That's fine. Yeah, being Imagine Dragons adjacent, obviously also morally as problematic. Yes, yes. but you know the Mets, the Mets fans. You know, like I'm sh- if you wanted to go to back to the Subway series when our two teams, your juggernaut, our pathetic National League <laughs> pennant winner, got there. Like our victory theme song was uh, "Who Let the Dogs Out" Who let the dogs by the Baja Men. So it's not like we're outclassing you exactly. <laughs> we all have our crosses to bear. So, yeah, we'll get to the Subway Series, Devin, in a little bit. That's the World Series matchup between the Mets and the Yankees back in 2000. But I now just want to get fully into the therapy session that you've obviously opened the door to. Why did you write this book in the first place? <laughs> yeah, it was a sort of an act of catharsis therapy. What is the phrase? Um, comedy is tragedy plus time. Mm. Well, it's, it's about time. It's been a while. And... You know, I think one of the reasons why I wanted to do this is because the Mets have had some good writing from the very beginning, some good books from the very beginning, but they're usually about 1969 when the Mets won the World Series, Mm. or 1986 when the Mets won the World Series. And my experience as a Mets fan is much more closely tied to the other 57 or so years when we didn't win World Series. (laughs) That's what it is to me to be a Mets fan. When most people talk to me about being a Mets fan or I tell them I'm a Mets fan, 1986 isn't where their heads go. 1969 isn't where their heads go. They're probably picturing something humiliating. Maybe they're thinking Bobby Bonilla Day or the Wilpons or Luis Castillo dropping a pop-up and losing a series to the Yankees. And it's popped in the air behind second base. Castillo backing up under the glass, under it. From the ball, the Yankees win. Luis Castillo dropped a pop-up. And the Mets have lost about the toughest game in That's what people tend to associate with the Mets. How big a slice is Mets fandom in your real day-to-day life? At this point, I got two kids, so it's very much a part of my day-to-day life, but it's sort of in the background and it comes to the foreground for a few minutes at a time, maybe an inning at a time. You mentioned you have two kids. When it comes to ranking, like your favorite moments of your life? Where do the Mets intersect with your kids and the loves of your life? I confess to the entire world that the Mets winning game six of the 1986 World Series, specifically Ray Knight rounding third base, stomping on home plate, was the best moment of my life. And I do have two children. (laughs) I would rank their births second and third. It was a clean, amazing, pure boyhood thrill. And I don't want to say it's been all downhill ever since, because that sounds a little despairing, but you know, that's what happens when, when the greatest moments of your life happens when you're 10 years old, (laughs) the rest of your life is kind of a slow sobering that it's not all going to be like that. So when you go to your publisher and you say, I want to write a book about the Mets and a lot of this book is about how awesome it is to lose Was that a hard pitch? Because I don't know if the reverse engineering of book success is premised all the time on failure, I suppose. The book began 
with an article in the Times Magazine about Gary, Keith, and Ron, our magnificent world-class yes. broadcast booth, the one and only year-in and year-out great thing that the Mets have, <laughs> and the one thing that we always, always get to lord over Yankee fans. A lot of people liked that article, I guess, and I heard from a publisher or two about whether or not I'd want to write a book. And there was definitely a, a sense that a comedy about losing – a team that could sustain that kind of story, especially since so many sports history books are, are about the subject of winning or triumph over the odds, triumph over adversity. Well, what about when, you know, adversity triumphs over you? Yeah, I got to be fully transparent here also, Devin, in terms of the adversity triumphing over you dynamic, <laughs> because we have two incredibly diehard tribal Met fans on staff. One of them, mm -hmm. Alex, is on the line with us here today. The other one, Chris, was asked if he wanted to like participate in the production of the show and his like PTSD and anticipation as to what we discuss here was actually so severe that he <laughs> said, I actually want no part of that episode <laughs> at all. That's, That's so not messy. a joke. That's so messy. Yeah, this this is Alex, the producer that did decide to uh, be on this this the production of this episode, and you know I completely understand where Chris is coming from, but you know part of I mean it, it's in this book, right? Like part of being a Mets fan is is literally being a glutton for punishment and and finding joy in these moments of near success, certain failure. Thanks, Alex. Reliving it all is is an honor and a lot of fun. Courage, Alex. Thanks. <laughs> courage. You got to have courage. Got to believe. <laughs> oh, God. No, okay, I great. can totally identify with that, though, is the thing. Just, you know, in a micro example, the, the Mets lost uh, the NLCS in Game 7 in the bottom of the ninth because Carlos Beltran struck out on three pitches with the winning run on second base. Two quick strikes on Carlos Beltran with the bases loaded two out. The Mets down by two. Breaking ball struck him out, and the Cardinals have won the pennant. This is covered in an entire chapter in my book, yes. um, which you would think means that I went back and reviewed the footage of Carlos Beltran striking out. I did not. I have actually <laughs> never seen the footage of Carlos Beltran striking out because I was in attendance at that game in person. I was in the nosebleeds at Shea, so super high up directly behind home plate. I was there in person. I do not need to see it again. I never will see it again. I wrote an entire chapter of my book without watching the climactic at bat that it's all about, but I don't care. So I can identify completely with your friend, um, your producer, sorry. Um, I totally get it. I think he probably made the right decision for himself and his family. <laughs> so your book has a subhead, the best worst team in sports, a tagline that is not just a tagline, Devin, it is a take. And so I don't want you to just throw that label around without justification. You're on ESPN Air right now. I need you to argue on behalf of that tagline. Like, there are Lions fans in the world, man. There are Jet fans. So what makes all of you people the best worst? The real answer is there's a difference between being bad and being gifted at losing. The Detroit Lions are bad at being bad. They're not even good at losing. All they do is lose. They are a charmless, colorless... Put it this way. The, the Detroit Lions, their uniforms are the color of slush, 
and tears, as far as I can tell. They're bluish gray, <laughs> grayish blue. They've never had any kind of memory. That's that's not being good at losing. That's just being bad, and anybody can be bad. What separates the Mets is their ability to not just lose, not just be bad, but figure out new ways to do it. You guys are right to point out that we have a surprisingly strong postseason history and playoff history. But that's part of the equation. In order to lose at this level, in order to be this gifted at losing, you have to have some highs and lows. You have to give yourself a cliff to swan dive off of. (laughs) As soon as you feel like we've got victory in hand, that's usually the first sign that things are about to go off the rails. But there's a flip side too, which is as soon as you think we're dead, as soon as you think we're lifeless, we also have a pretty rich history of that being when we rise up off the mat and do our Phoenix act and pull a miracle out of our hat. And both of those things work in concert, and that's why we're the best worst. All right, coming up. Devin shows us the scars from his most painful moment as a Mets fan. Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home some huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. When you mention the Phoenix metaphor, and you write about this in your book, Devin, it occurs to me that it is not just any Phoenix. It is a Phoenix trapped in sort of like a Groundhog's Day kind of a cycle that elevates this to something literary, truly, just exactly what you guys go through. Is there a particular trauma swan dive moment that kind of summarizes for those uninitiated into your tribe what exactly you're describing there well i mean i guess the one that resonates for me is in the 2006 nlcs not to go back to the worst moment of my mets fandom and many mets fandoms in the modern era the reason why that game hurt so much and that season hurt so much is because andy chavez our magical utility outfielder Mm. made the catch of postseason history as far as i'm concerned to save that game for us in the seventh inning fastball hit in the air to left field that's deep back goes chavez back near the wall leaping and he made the catch he took a home run away from rolling it was the kind of catch it was the kind of moment that a lot of sports fans i think have experienced where you just feel like god is on your side You feel like someone has sent you a message. It's your turn. You're going to win this time. And yeah, I know. I know. You're probably thinking, why are you so dumb? Why? That is, Devin, full disclosure, that is exactly what I was thinking. Yeah, you should. I'm thinking it now, sitting here saying it out loud. And yet, when Andy made that catch, I was like, we're going to the World Series. We're going to win. This is ours. 
And then it was about an hour later that Carlos Beltran was watching Strike Three go past him. And it, it, it crushed me. It crushed your producer. I can't even watch the footage. The Beltran example, Devin, I'm reminded of that. I've been able to watch that a couple times because I bear none of the scar tissue that you just described. But like the fact that he watched yes. the pitches, like the impotence from one of the greatest hitters in the game, who then, I mean, comes back. Yes. Comes back. I mean, what was it like to watch that seen for the one and only time and then have to welcome him back as manager years later. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, I think even first we have to rewind because there's even some more messiness to this, which is Carlos Beltran didn't just sit there with the bat on his shoulder for three straight pitches. He was the guy you wanted up in that situation. He mm. was one of the most devastating postseason hitters of the gen- of his generation up to that point. We had up the guy we wanted and then he watched three pitches go by and he crushed our hearts. And then 14 years later, the Mets hire this guy to manage our team, the curveball watcher. They hired him to manage our team. It was like, you know, somebody buries an ax in your chest. And then 14 years later, you know, your, your mom invites him over and now he's your stepdad. And <laughs> I had to go through this thing where I felt like it was this really beautiful, redemptive, almost novelistic arc that Carlos Beltran was trying to pull off. See, he was just as wounded about 2006 as we were. Oh, he no. even alluded to oh, it. He Devin. even alluded to it in his press conference. Uh, and I just want to say to the Mets, thank you for believing in me. Uh, I just can't wait to rewrite our story uh, being the manager of the New York Mets. And I was like smitten all over again. All was forgiven because, again, now I was convinced that here was the way we were going to win another World Series. Here was how we were going to do it. Because this is how the Mets would pull it off, right? Carlos Beltran redeems himself. He comes back and he leads us to the World Series. This is how it was meant to be. No, how it was meant to be is six weeks later, he got fired because he got embroiled in the largest cheating scandal since the 1919 Black Sox. <laughs> and I don't know for the life of me how I didn't see this coming. I was picturing a ticker tape parade with Carlos Beltran sitting atop a float. And in, in all that time, I should have been like, you know, he definitely came up with that whole Astros scheme. It's just got to turn out to be that way. This is the Mets. Of course, it's going to turn out to be this way. So you start the book, Dev, and you made this decision to start the book with triumph, with the happiest moment for so many Met fans. Yeah. With Game 6 of the 86 World Series, with Mookie Wilson and the slow roller and Bill Buckner and that ball going between his legs. And a ground ball, trickling, it is a fair ball, hit by Buckner, rounding third night, the Mets will win the ball game, the Mets win, they win. Why did you decide to start your book with Triumph? That's where I started with the Mets, for one thing, but also because I think that experience that night <laughs> that 10th inning was sort of like was like a crucible of my entire Mets future to come. That victory was such an anomaly in my sports experience as a fan that it seemed like the right way to begin because everything from that moment was going to be an education in how fleeting those moments are, how rare they are, because so much of what the Mets are all about is 
you start with a high point, that's the anomaly. And the reality is that is everything that comes next. And that was certainly true with the 86 Mets. It also sounds like you just wanted an excuse to maybe relive the musical opus that was Get Metsmerized. Get Metsmerized! Get Metsmerized! Get Metsmerized! You know, I almost did a whole chapter on Get Metsmerized and George Foster. So you got to explain, because I didn't know about Let's Get Metsmerized because I was one in 86, but it is, it is worthy of your description here. I guess the real origin story for Get Metsmerized is the 1985 Chicago Bears because they had the Super Bowl shuffle, which became a smash hit, right? And so the 86 Mets come along and they're the dominant team and they're like, we got to get one of those. A player named George Foster, who was a fearsome slugger for the Cincinnati Reds in the late 70s in the Big Red Machine, became a very high-priced free agent with the Mets. He was someone who always had a side hustle. He was always trying to have, have new business ideas. And his latest business idea was the Mets should make their own Super Bowl shuffle. I'm George Foster. I love this team. The Mets are better than the Red Machine. I live the and he called it Gets Metsmerized. This year we're going to win the series ring. Play together, a team and they did it on an off day in Pittsburgh with a couple of friends of his who were very bad record producers. George Forster managed to rope like seven or eight Mets into cutting a rap single. <laughs> um, Daryl Strawberry was on it. Um, their shortstop, Raphael Santana, who spoke basically no English, was on it. Uh, George Foster's au pair came in to do backing vocals. I'm sorry. Hold on. How did an au pair get involved in a rap single performed by the New York Mets? Well, they needed someone to sing. <laughs> and she was there, I guess, or nearby. And so it was very embarrassing. It was a very bad song. You actually should, it's so bad, you definitely should go look it up because the lyrics are truly, truly hilariously awful. I will point out here that producer Alex, who was... Foolish enough to be on this recording has just texted me. I've got the entire song downloaded. And I believe he refers to his soul and not his computer there. It's a wonder. Still alive. Rafael Santana is my name. Playing short stop is my game. I'm a cool glove man. I'm real smooth. Been mesmerized. You've seen the groove. Teens real hot. Stand up. Up next. The Mets' history that even diehard fans don't know, and some they'd like to forget. Vivid Seats wants to get you to the games you love this spring. Experience every pitch, assist, and game-winning shot live and in person. And the best part? Each transaction is a step toward a free 11th ticket with Vivid Seats rewards. Score unbeatable perks like free tickets, surprise seat upgrades, and annual birthday deals. As the official ticketing partner of ESPN, Vivid Seats is offering you $20 off your first $200 ticket purchase with code DAILY. That's code DAILY. Visit VividSeats.com or download the app today. Vivid Seats. Experience it live. Shopping for Father's Day is usually a challenge because you wait until the last minute. But Macy's Gift Finder makes it incredibly fast and easy to find the right gift just in time for Father's Day. Whether you're shopping for your brother's first Father's Day or your Renaissance man grandpa, whose interests, of course, are all over the map, Macy's Gift Finder has so many great gift ideas that you can easily pick out something special to celebrate them both. You can shop by price, anywhere from 25 bucks and under to 100 bucks and over, 
You can also sort by category, like cologne, watches, and more. Or gift lists for items like, I don't know, your grill master or golfer in your life. You can also get top tech, from Beats headphones to JBL portable speakers. Or if you're looking for top brands, you'll find gifts from Calvin Klein, Polo Ralph Lauren, and Columbia. So what are you waiting for? Father's Day is June 16th and we'll be here before you know it. Macy's offers the ultimate gift guide to making selecting something special for dad incredibly easy this year. Head to Macy's.com slash gift finder today. That's Macy's.com slash gift finder. So there is a lot of Mets history, Devin, that you get into that I didn't know about that is substantive and historical and journalistic. And the first owner of the New York Mets has never been a person that I had given any thought to. But the story you report in your book is fascinating. So who was the first owner of the New York Mets? This is Joan Whitney Payson. Um, Whitney is in the Whitney Museum of American Art. Her family basically built America. Father worked for presidents, grandfather worked for presidents, uncles who worked for U.S. Steel. And she was also the first woman ever to launch a professional sports franchise Mm. uh, rather than inherit one. Which means that Mrs. Joan Whitney Payson, the Mets founding owner, should probably be a civil rights hero and certainly a 20th 20th century sports icon. Right. Um, But she is neither. She's barely known. Um, even among Mets fans, she's barely known. Sometimes you 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 get erased from history for really silly reasons too. In the case of Mrs. Payson, one of the big reasons is because Mrs. Payson loved the New York Giants, the baseball team, the New York Giants, and specifically Willie Mays. Uh, Willie Mays was her favorite player, and she actually owned a tiny slice of the New York Giants. But when they moved to California in 1957, she was heartbroken because in 1957. When your team moves to California, it's not like you can watch the highlights on ESPN, right? Mm. Willie Mays was gone from her life. The Giants were gone from her life. Well, the Mets were a result of the Giants leaving and the Dodgers leaving. But when Mrs. Payson sold the team and Fred Wilpon, among others, bought it, Fred Wilpon was raised in Brooklyn. He pitched batting practice at Ebbets Field. He worshipped the Brooklyn Dodgers. And so when he bought the Mets, in many ways, the Brooklyn Dodgers lineage of the Mets not only flourished in many ways, it sort of took over the, took over the team. I mean, if you've been to City Field, it's more, yeah. it's more Ebbets than Shea. Definitely. And so one thing that would be great is if our new owner, Mr. Cohen, maybe would fix that a little bit, that we should be proud of Mrs. Payson and her history as an owner, especially since, by the way, she was awesome. She was went to nightclubs, loved sports, hilarious people. She was delightful. And so it's a particularly weird wonderful thing for the Mets not to be embracing. You use a tone in your writing, Devin, throughout your book that can sometimes be described, I think, as almost activists, such as when (laughs) you're recommending to Steve Cohn, the billionaire owner of the Mets, hey, maybe consider this historical bit of work that the team could do to acknowledge its first female owner. But you also do it in the reporting and in the study of labor relations and labor relations through the lens of race. And I think, Mm -hmm. of course, of Cleon Jones and that particular story. Why did that story mean so much to you and to the Mets? So a little background on Cleon Jones. He was the Mets' first great three-hole hitter and held almost all of the early Mets hitting records. Black man from Mobile, Alabama. Mets center fielder Tommy Agee growing up was his best friend. 
they were sort of the offensive core of the 69 World Series champion team. And Cleon Jones was the was the key hitter on that team. But he had a lot of run-ins with management, a lot of run-ins with ownership. He was not shy about his thoughts, and that got you labeled the wrong way in that time. And he also had a bad knee. And there was an incident in the, in the World Series season of 1969 when he had sort of a confrontation in the field with his manager, Gil Hodges, who is a legend, a hero of the Brooklyn Dodgers, but marched Cleon off the field in the middle of the game because he believed that Cleon Jones had not hustled for a line drive that got past him. Mm. And Cleon was leading the Mets in hitting at the time. I believe he was leading the National League in hitting at the time. And this was held up in the t- in the moment as an act of rectitude by the Mets manager, uh, a, a sign that even the best hitter on the Mets could not be lazy in the field, could not loaf it after a line drive. Everyone was the same in Gil Hodges' eyes. Even if you were the best hitter, you would be sent the message that you have to hustle. But Devin, like thinking about this now, a manager walking onto the field to march a player off it is that's unthinkable almost. It should have been clear at the time too, humiliating anyone, let alone a black player, would have been humiliating to a white player too. Mm. But what was interesting about that moment to me is even now, if you read about this moment, it's usually held up as a an example of Gil Hodges' greatness as a manager, his fairness as a manager, his stubborn sense of rectitude, rather than what I think it was, was probably the biggest mistake of his managerial career because Cleon Jones's reputation never really recovered from that. And what happened to Cleon Jones in 69 was just the first of a series of sort of racially tinged incidents. They weren't always overtly racist. They had this tinge of it that just became undeniable after a certain point. And by 1975, the Mets ended up releasing Cleon Jones for nothing. He was, he, he was leading the Mets in pretty much every offensive category in franchise history when they released him. And he was 30, 31 years old. And they released him for nothing. It was basically Mm. like a divorce. You know, that's not how things are supposed to end six years after this miracle World Series with with your best hitter. So beyond the sociology that undergirds the Cleon Jones story, it does feel, Devin, like reputation management and (laughs) warfare with their own stars. That's been a tradition throughout the decades for the New York Mets. What is your assessment of the relationship dysfunction that keeps on recurring when it comes to Mets players in particular? Yeah, you know, I think one of the arguments for why the Mets couldn't possibly be the best worst team is because we we always seem to have superstars, right? We always seem to have big, colorful players on our team, one or another. Yeah, but look, look at what we do to them. <laughs> look at what we do to them. Francisco Lindor, are you paying attention? Be careful, my friend. I mean, we do have this sort of, I don't know what it is. If it's sometimes it's ownership mismanagement, sometimes it's bad luck. Sometimes it's devastating injury. We have a habit of not taking very good care of the things that are most dear to us, let's say. We had a superstar break his ankle because he got chased into a ditch by a wild boar while he was already recovering from double heel surgery. Double heel surgery. I mean, you have to tell the Tom Seaver like capsule history here to to explain what he meant and just how he was done. Okay. So the Mets basically screwed Tom Seaver over three times. 
the first time the Mets traded away Tom Seaver, it was called the Midnight Massacre. So I'm not going to give you any details. Just all you need to know is it's known as the Midnight Massacre. Okay. <laughs> then six years later, he consents to a triumphant return, pitches one season for the rebuilding Mets in 1983. Everybody loves him. Everybody's happy again. And then they, for some dumb reason, leave him unprotected in a free agent compensation draft because they assume that nobody's going to want 40-year-old Tom Seaver, except the Chicago White Sox do. The final blow for the Mets was that, uh, and most people don't know this, is that Tom Seaver's uh, last team in the major leagues was with the Boston Red Sox. He was Mm. um, a replacement starter for the Boston Red Sox down the stretch in 1986, which means that he was in the Red Sox dugout when the Mets clinched the World Series title in Game 7, 1986. Thanks, Tom Seaver. Thanks for the memories. <laughs> Devin, I could go down the list here with you, but I do, though, want to talk to you about Bobby Bonilla, Devin, because in your capacity as fan and journalist, you managed to tell his story in a way that I didn't know about. So, Bobby Bonilla and his infamous contract and that whole saga. Tell us who Bobby Bonilla was, what his contract was about, and let's just start there. Bobby Bonilla was Barry Bonds' teammate in Pittsburgh. Barry Bonds went home to San Francisco. Bobby Bonilla came home to New York. It was a disaster. He was sort of the poster boy for uh, a team that came to be known as the worst team that money can buy. <laughs> and by 1999, the Mets were so sick of Bobby Bonilla that if they essentially struck a deal, they would buy out the last year of his contract. They wouldn't pay him any of it until 2011, at which point they would start paying him $1.2 million every year for about 25 years. This is how Bobby Bonilla day July 1st every year when Bobby Bonilla receives his $1.2 million check from the Mets, which he will continue to do into the 2030s. It is an embarrassing holiday because we have to cut a check for uh, a guy we all despise, well, Mets fans despise. It's basically the day of the year, Devin, when everybody in sports points and laughs like Nelson Muntz at the New York Mets because they are paying Bobby Bonilla seven figures this year and every year basically in the near future. I think the reason why it's become such a big deal is because not just Bobby Bonilla, but the people who were paying him, which is the Wilpons, the, the previous owners of the Mets, who, you know, this this deal kicked in in 2011, um, which was right in the middle of the Wilpon family being bankrupted by Bernie Madoff. Mm-hmm. So not only are you paying $1.2 million to an outfielder that no one likes, you're paying $1.2 million you don't have to an outfielder nobody <laughs> likes. But here's, to me, the even more hilarious, more Metsy truth of the deal, which is that it was it was a huge success for the Mets. Mm. It worked out great for them. This deal that everybody considers to be this albatross, this grand humiliation that we celebrate year in and year out, it worked out great. We were able to get the ace pitcher using his $6 million that we needed. And that pitcher was Mike Hampton. He was the NLCS MVP in 2000, pitched us into the Subway Series against the Yankees, which we fought to a five-game draw. <laughs> Actually, Devin, I do want to bring in our producer Alex here because the thing I did want to mention now that you have your chest all puffed out about World (laughs) Series experience is that video we saw in spring training of your collective, Alex and Devin, (laughs) your New York Mets, practicing what it would be like to win the World Series this season. So how are you guys feeling about... All of that. Alex, go ahead. 
I mean, I just think you got to visualize it in order for it to happen, right? Taking that time on the field in spring training when you're practicing and, and running through all the routines that you're going to use all season, it, it just makes sense for a team that I think has oh, as good God. a shot as any of taking this I thing home you, in 2021. I'm so proud of you. I'm so proud of you. You guys are literally making us practice and like do over <laughs> being optimistic so that you can laugh at us uh, later yeah I'm, I'm calling hr <laughs> after this is over uh <laughs> devin gordon and alex hyacinth two mets fans who are now in my life hopefully for a very long time i thank you both for your emotional vulnerability <laughs> thanks wish us luck I'm Pablo Torre. This has been ESPN Daily. I'll talk to you tomorrow.